Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Johnny Foster. Last week, before America returned to space, we talked with Cindy Manto about NASA space centers. And this week, I will speak with Raymond Cinebaldi about his book, John F. Kennedy, From Florida to the Moon. It was September 12, 1962, when President John F. Kennedy delivered a speech at Rice University before nearly 50,000 people. By that time, America had launched but four men into space, the suborbital flights of Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, and the nearly identical three orbit journeys of John Glenn and Scott Carpenter. Buoyed by the success of those missions, and cognizant of the danger that lay ahead, the President re-articulated his vision and reissued this challenge to reach the moon before 1970, saying, We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. The assassination of President Kennedy in the words of flight director Gene Kranz turned his vision into a quest to do it and do it in the time frame he allotted. On July 20, 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped off the ladder of the lunar module known as Eagle, taking one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Raymond P. Cinebaldi, author of such books as The 1967 Red Sox, The Impossible Dream Season, 1975 Red Sox, American League Champions, John F. Kennedy in New England, Fenway Park, and the upcoming John F. Kennedy at Rest in Arlington, poured over thousands of photographs from John F. Kennedy Library and the National Aeronautic and Space Administration to put together a riveting tale of John F. Kennedy and his relationship with men who laid the foundation of the quest that took the United States of America from Florida to the moon. Hey, Ray, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you, Johnny. What would you think about that launch Saturday? Well, I'll tell you what, it, uh, I actually had goosebumps, and I was a little bit disappointed when it was scrubbed um, on Thursday. Uh, but it was very reminiscent to me of the first launch that, uh, that I watched uh, when Alan Shepard went up in 1961, I was in the third grade at the James Humphrey School in, uh, in East Lambeth, Massachusetts. And in those days, we had there was a, like an old schoolhouse in four corner rooms, with wide open in the middle, and there were two black and white televisions on rolling stands, one for the first floor, one for the second floor. And we all gathered crisscross applesauce and watched on the floor as all the four classrooms emptied out, and watched Alan Shepard go up into space. And I get that same kind of giddy feeling when I was watching this. Uh, it was it was uh, uh, the, the historical significance of what took place. When you look at the fact it was the first time in four decades that we have launched a space, uh, men into space, Americans into space from from American soil uh, in, in, in a decade, and the first time in four decades that we had a new type of spacecraft in which we did it. So there was a lot of, there was, there was obviously tremendous, great historical significance in that. And then when, um, when the phrase, light this, let's light this candle, was uttered, yeah. it, literally, it literally brought a tear to my eye. Uh, you know, that was Alan, Alan Shepard. Interestingly enough, there were a lot of delays back in the beginning, a lot of delays because we were really running quick. We were running, we were, you might even say we were way out over our skis because we were trying desperately to get into space uh, after, Sp- you know, getting all the way back into the 50s with Sputnik. Um, with all, with, when Sputnik went up in 56, 
I mean, that literally sent the chill up the spine of, of, of the American, every American and the American culture, because what it told us is that the Soviets, now having just developed the hydrogen bomb, they now had nuclear power, they now had a delivery system. So on the outset, there was, there was, you know, the Eisenhower administration was acting rather, you know, we knew this was coming and we're okay and we'll, we'll be all right and that kind of thing. And behind the scenes, they were really, it, it became a race. It became, a, and, a, and truly a race. That was really the beginning of it. NASA was formed and, you know, the fall in, in 58 and, and our, you know, we went and we, and we moved forward. So, um, just before Shepard went up, the Soviets put Yuri Gagarin in office. So now the Soviets, not only had they beat us into space, now they had beat us with a, a, a man in space, and now they had beat us with a man in space who actually orbited the Earth. Um, so Shepard was just scheduled for a little short 15-minute suborbital flight. And, um, and there were a lot of delays. And, and at one point, of course, it was supposed to be a 15-minute flight. So Shepard was thinking by the time he'd get in, because, you know, he'd be in and out of the thing within a span of a couple of three hours. Well, there was delay after delay after delay. And finally, um, Alan Shepard had to, uh, he had to use the restroom. He had to pee, and there was nowhere to go. So he literally just went. And then when they were going back and forth, he finally said, listen, let's just light this candle. Basically, let's get on with it. And when they used that phrase on Saturday, I just thought it was, I thought it was the coolest thing. I really, uh, I really thought, that's a, there is a great thread that runs between all of the space flights, you know, and um, among them being that when uh, when when uh, Armstrong and uh, when you know Armstrong and uh, Collins and Aldrin went to the moon, they brought with them uh, memorabilia and things that belonged to um, uh, Gus Grissom and Roger Chaffee and Ed White, who were, of course the three astronauts that were killed in the in the launch pad fire. Uh, in, in the 1960s before that actually everybody thought they would never, we would never make it when that happened in January of 67. So there's a thread that runs through it. I was glad to see that thread uh, was prominent on, uh, on Saturday. It was good stuff. You know, speaking of threads that run through things, people need to know two things about you. You're a Kennedy fan and you're a baseball fan and you've written books on both subjects. And even in right. this book, you still managed to start this book off with baseball. And, you know... I- you did that because it shows that life was going on as normal because the World Series was happening, and then all of a sudden Sputnik happens, you know, with the yeah, Soviets yeah. launched as a satellite. You know, and you talked about that a little yeah. bit, but can you kind of tell us about what effect that had on then-Senator Kennedy when that happens? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'll even back up a little bit before that, Johnny. JFK, JFK was a, an incredibly curious human being. And him and Verna Von Braun met in 1952. Kennedy was in, he was, Kennedy was a newly elected senator from Massachusetts. And uh, Von Braun was, of course, you know, he was, he was, he came over, you know, obviously he was, he was a German. Um, He surrendered to the United States at the end of World War II. And he was part of our, 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 he was uh, probably a head rocket scientist, for lack of a better better phrase, at the time. But he, he met, and they were they were part of a they were at a dinner that was the nominating Time Magazine's Man of the Year, and they chatted. And von Braun would later record in the JFK Library, um, following the president's assassination, uh, you know, a dozen a dozen years uh, sorry later, that um, you know he was he was 
he was absolutely enthralled with the questions he was he was asking him, and he asked him a lot of questions about rocketry and about and about flying, and about all that stuff. And of course, a lot related to the fact that President Kennedy's older brother, Joe, had been killed in a um, in a in a flight gone awry uh, over the English Channel in World War II. And he asked a lot of questions. And Von Braun emerged from that, and, and he did say, he said he said to his wife after that dinner, he said, I wouldn't be surprised if this guy is one day president of the United States. So pretty pretty prophetic on his part and yeah. also pretty intuitive and pretty insightful because of, uh, you know, what a curious guy that, that JFK was. But, again, it, you know, in 56, when um, – I think it was 56, maybe 57. I get confused at this point in my life. But they, uh, when Sputnik went up, they really, I mean, the, 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 the fear that was struck uh, really in the collective, up the collective spine of the American, the American people was, uh, it, it's, it's hard to imagine today. It really is hard to imagine today. But, but, you know, when you look at the thread of the Cold War, you look at the fact that we, we beat the Germans to the nuclear to the atomic bomb, and when that when the Manhattan Project began, that was the objective because it was it was thought to be that we needed to stop Germany because we knew that they were working on, it. and that came from Einstein's letter to Franklin Roosevelt. Um, so you know when that when that took place, and then we kind of were maybe a little bit lulled to sleep, I think, just figuring we had that, so nobody's going to mess with us. Um, and then the Soviets detonated a hydrogen bomb. I want to say I think it was in '55. And when that took place, obviously it was kind of like, whoa, okay, so now there are, you know, there's two nuclear powers, two, you know, two nations. Um, and, and then when Sputnik went up in October, I mean, it was, it was, it was astounding again because they, they had now had, a, they had a delivery system. They not only had, they, they not only had, uh, had this weapon. But they now had missiles. If they could send a rocket into space and break the, you know, and break the Earth's orbit, then they sure as heck could send a rocket, you know, three, four, five thousand miles um, from the Soviet Union to the United States. So it really was seen on the inner circle at the White House and national security level. It was seen as a huge shift in the balance of power, and it became kind of a, it became kind of a campaign issue. Um, for the 1960 between between JFK and, and Nixon, yeah, you know, and he talked about the fact that he, you know, JFK talked a lot about restoring American promise, mm -hmm. and then of course in '61, when he now now you had you know you had Alan Shepard, you had Gagarin went into orbit in April. April of '61 was a tough month for him because you had you had Gagarin going into orbit. You had the Bay of Pigs fiasco. In which the invasion of Cuba fell flat on the face, and then and then we had Alan Shepard, who still hadn't gone up yet. So it was a, the the Kennedy the Kennedy uh, administration was literally stumbling coming out of the gate. And after the Bay of Pigs invasion, you know, he basically went before the public and he said, "Listen, this is I'm the executive officer of the government, and the responsibility is mine as to what transpired there." Uh, you know, behind the scenes, there was a lot of other stuff going on, but. Um, ultimately, and strangely enough, the following two, three, four days, JFK had the highest Gallup poll that you know once in one stretch of time that any president has had 
since then. And his approval rating was up like 80.1%, which he quipped to Dave Powers and Dave, the worse I do, the better they like me. That's what he said, you know, basically, which was kind of interesting. But the fact of the matter was, he just took the responsibility for it and then moved forward. So that now is in April, Johnny. Alan Shepard goes up, so we've had one suborbital flight. And on May 25th, Kennedy addresses a joint session of Congress. And he set the sights, and this is when the famous speech, I believe we should set our sights on putting man on the moon and returning to safety to Earth by the end of the decade. And it's really interesting when you, so when you look at the, the context of all of that that was going on, and we had, you know, we had to put, we had put one guy, one person had gone up in a suborbital flight. So we hadn't even put anybody in orbit yet. And it's very interesting. Um, Gene Kranz, as a matter of fact, I saw him on TV, uh, this weekend and it was great to see him. He's got to be 95 if he's a day. Um, and he was the flight director of so many flights of Mercury, Gemini and Apollo. Uh, and even some of the shuttle, but he, he was always around the flight deck. I mean, this was his life. He was a Korean, uh, war, uh, Korean War mm-hmm. fighter pilot. Um, and he is uh, very famous for the movie Apollo 13, played by Ed Harris, the guy saying failure was not an option. Uh, but he was on, and, and, but he was interviewed uh, later, looking back in retrospect about going to the moon. And he said that when, when Kennedy made that announcement, he said, we literally looked at each other and said, he's crazy. He is really crazy. And Krantz talked about that after, when he slept on it, he woke up the next day. He said he was so excited. He said, because, he said, the fact, he said, this guy has got this much confidence that we can pull this off. And he was excited to work, to jump in and dig in and get going with it. So it's really, I guess that sort of in that one little small little anecdote about one guy who was obviously a key figure, you know, and I guess that really is what leadership is capable of doing, you know, and the, and the guys in NASA, Johnny, back in those days, the engineers at the beginning, these guys were all 23, 22, 23 year old kids, engineers with bachelor's degree, you know, they were hiring them in droves. And these are kind of the guys that's uh, it's really in a way, kind of a little bit of a blue collar story. You know, yeah. there weren't, Doctorate, doctorate degree physicists and all that kind of stuff. These were just young kids coming out of school and just kind of jumping in. And it really is, uh, you know, it's a, just a remarkable story. And the, and the relationship that JFK developed with, you know, he was a Navy guy. You know, he was he was a, he was a World War II veteran of the United States Navy and um, a combat veteran. And he had uh, and he developed quite a relationship with uh, with those original. Mercury, uh, Mercury Seven astronauts. That's really pretty special. Yeah, you know, and let's talk about those guys too, because uh, the men he selected or were, that were selected to be part of the space program. How were they selected? What was NASA looking for in those astronauts? Well, you know, there, there was there was a lot of them. I want to say a lot of them were uh, they like they like the test pilots. They were all they were all pilots of one of one form or another. And I, I think, if I remember correctly, I want to say, and I, and I could be wrong in this, 49 is in my head. I don't know if it's 49 or 149 guys that fly. And they just, they just kept narrowing them down and narrowing them down, narrowing them down, narrowing them down. And, uh, you know, we got to the, we got to the seven 
And then within the seven, you had this unbelievable competition that took place because everybody wanted to be the first, you know. And it was pretty interesting. And interestingly enough, the, the backup the backup guy for Alan Shepard was John Glenn wow. on the first flight. The backup guy for Gus Grissom on the second flight was John Glenn. And then John Glenn got the third flight, which was the first the first guy in order. And that was like that was like nothing. It's hard for me to, you know, and again, now I'm a kid. I'm nine years old at that point, February of 1962. And uh, it was, I mean, it was spine chilling when that, when that happened. Once again, we all gathered up, you know, at school and watched it and uh, watched the takeoff and, and all that. And what we really didn't, what we didn't really know was how, how incredibly fragile this whole thing was. And how dangerous it was, you know. We were never led on to that. One of the, my my favorite stories is that you know when when I mean John Glenn was supposed to go up there and kind of spin around for a while. There wasn't really a, a limit to it, but they found that um, they found that uh, there was like, seemed to be a crack in the heat shield, mm-hmm. and um, they wanted to. Uh, they weren't sure if it was going to hold, and you know. So he came back in and basically as they as they as he reentered. The bottom line was he, he, he would never know if the heat shield was broken. He never would have known. And, um, and it was interesting because that was John Glenn's only flight. He never went into the Gemini program or the Apollo program. Most of these other guys flew. You know, Wally Sharaf flew in all three of them. Um, Gus Grissom went on. He flew, in, he flew in Gemini. Armstrong was a Gemini pilot. He wasn't one of the original sevens. But those guys across the board... Um, the original seven, if I can remember, I'm pretty sure I can. It was Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, Glenn, Scott Carpenter, um, Gordon Cooper, uh, Wally Sherrard, and Deke Slate. Uh, Deke Slate never flew because he ended up having a heart. He had a, he developed a heart murmur. So he was, he was, he was docked. Um, he later would fly on the Apollo Soyuz mission, and I believe it was 72. When the heart murmur, his condition improved, so he ultimately did get in space. But Glenn never flew again. Um, Scott Carpenter was behind Glenn. Uh, he did a, and he kind of, he was kind of a very interesting guy. He was more. He wasn't really all that. He wasn't a detail guy. So as a pilot in the capsule, he really wasn't doing paying attention to things that he was supposed to be paying attention to. Um, so like he fired a retro, a retro switch, like about three seconds late. Now we think of that three seconds. What's the big deal? And he ended up 250 miles away from the ship that, that was supposed to pick him up in the ocean. So those kinds of details are pretty important. <laughs> and actually, I mean, and they, he got land based for that and he never flew again. That was the end of him as an astronaut. But interestingly enough, Johnny, he went into oceanography. And he was part of designing, designing um, underwater environments. And he actually, for a long time, he held the record for staying underwater in one of these artificial environments for like 29 days, which was a world record for a long time. You know, like a biosphere that they would create underwater. So all these guys are very, very interesting things. Um, you know, interesting stories to tell. Gordon Cooper had probably the the worst assignment because all he did was he had nothing to do but go up and orbit 22 times 
and all they wanted to do was check him. It was like a, the, the primary objective of that particular mission was to just see what the human body would do. It was an extended time in space and in, and in um, you know, and in a non-gravity environment. So that's what he did. But he became a very interesting guy in his own right. And he ended up, he was one of the only ones that actually talked openly after the fact about things that they, that he saw that he identified as USO. They were just, he couldn't identify flying objects and things like that. So there's an interesting, it's, like I said, there's an interesting thread. Well, John Glenn retired from NASA. Obviously, we go on to become a senator for decades from Ohio, uh, Democratic senator from Ohio, which, by the way, John Kennedy asked him to do in 19, uh, in 1962. He was talking about, he said, do you think you ought to run for Senate? Because he was obviously looking to add Democrats to the, to the, to the Senate. Uh, and John Glenn, John Glenn actually, um, actually became a very close friend of Robert Kennedy. Um, as a matter of fact, <laughs> and, and that friendship, that friendship began during his days as an astronaut in the, in the, uh, in the Kennedy administration. And John Glenn would also, uh, John Glenn and Gus Grissom, they're both buried in Arlington. So they all, 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 those two guys lie in eternal rest in the, in the same ground that the president lies in. So it's kind of, kind of an interesting serendipity to all of that. Yeah, right. uh, John Glenn was a true American hero. At the, I mean, it, it took a take parade. I mean, we don't even see anything like that anymore, but he had ticket and take parade in New York. He had, he had ticket take parade in Cape Canaveral. He had a ticket take parade uh, in Washington. In Washington, he went up to address the. Uh, he went up to address Congress. Um, him, Grissom, and Chip went up and sat before Congress, and uh, and they were told that. Um, and interestingly enough, Gus Grissom and and uh, it was very 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 prophetic um, about the fact that you know uh, and Glenn Glenn might have said this. I'm sorry, and it was in, talked about the fact that listen. Not everything is going to be this successful. You know, this is a dangerous mission we're on, and we're going to have our failures. And, you know, him and Grissom were talking about that. And, of course, Grissom, Grissom who almost died in his, in his suborbital flight, he almost drowned. The ship, the Liberty Bell sank, capsule sank to the bottom of the sea, um, would die again, would die in that fire on the launch pad and the, and the, te- and the test in uh, 1967. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you brought that up too because you know I was wondering if President Kennedy played any role because I know that after Gus Grissom almost went down, um, you know that NASA was thinking about maybe they needed more test flights before John Glenn orbited. Right. Did President mm-hmm. Kennedy play any role in going ahead and pushing forward with the mission? Well, listen, you know what was, what was interesting about that is JFK was very, very. Um, the, every one of these guys wrote memoirs and things, okay? And they always talked about how JFK's interest was not just like, he was very interested in the, the technology of it and all that kind of thing. But it was really more, and all of them would talk about, but he was interested in you, in you, in us, in us as, as guys, as just as, as people. Wally Shiraz said, he said, he was like part of our club. He said he really was kind of like a buddy in that, in that sense. Um, I, there, there was, there was, there was, I want to say probably almost insurmountable pressure coming to move forward all the time. 
all the time that this was a this was a risk. It, it was never lost that this was a risk taking endeavor. And um, and and again with with John Glenn's play, good lord, I can't even remember. I couldn't. I don't think I could give you the chronology in the book. I went through all that had gone, all of the delays, and the delays, and the delays, and the delays. And they just said, "Let's go." You know, we can't we can't wait anymore. And this was really the height of the the height of the space race. And you looked at when you looked at memorandums that went back and forth about you know what what is what is this where are we in terms of opposition in the world? And it's it's really hard to it's hard to describe the I guess for lack of a better phrase, the Cold War was really a war of ideas and influence, basically. And um and we were we were losing that battle. You know, we were definitely losing that battle. Uh in, in ter- again in terms of our of our position in the world. And when you are looking at at the idea of 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 sort of showing to the world this way of life as opposed to the the, the life of, of freedom in our society and the oppression of the communist society and the lack of democracy there and, and all of that. But, you know, Khrushchev was always talking about, listen, it works. We're better than that. So he was constantly beating the drum. So there was always, this was a highly pressured environment that these guys were in all the time. And the beauty of it for them was they, they recognized it, they knew it, and they fully, they fully accepted the risks. And that's really what, you know, I mean, when you think about it throughout our history, you know, I mean, even those two guys sitting in that nice new, new craft on, um, on, on Saturday, that was a cool looking deal. That was a, that was futuristic. That was, like, for lack of a better phrase, I'll call it Star Trek. Yep. I've said you know, that more than me. once this weekend. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. You know, I'm waiting for them to beam down. You know what I mean? It was like, and, and with that comes sort of a, and you know, some, we can, um, we can become complacent. And thinking that this is sort of like just jumping in an Uber, you know, and heading out to dinner, and it's not. We get, we, you know, it, it when it goes off so cleanly, and without a hitch, and you see all that, you know, we don't, we we can lose the fact that holy mackerel, this thing can go in a second, like we saw, unfortunately, with with the two uh, the two Challenger spacecraft mm. and crew that we lost. I mean, this is a highly intense, dangerous. Um, you know, missions that we're involved with whenever we get in one of those things and, uh, and take off. And I don't think we should, we should, uh, ever, ever not really recognize that and fall into complacency that this stuff is just routine. Because yeah. that was it, a piece, it, 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 with Columbia, it was a piece, it was happened there. I mean, it burned up in reentry, but it was a, a piece of foam that hit a tile that caused that. Exactly. Exactly. Right when you, you know, yeah when you look at all you know you look at all, all that stuff and and again you can you realize within all that power that immense power is a is a is a very very thin fragility as well you know and that's I mean looking in the in the and the, the fire in the spacecraft it killed Grissom and Chafee and, and White and all that well you know we can sit here today and say are you kidding me that entire capsule was pure oxygen? How stupid is that? You know, I mean, we could say it today, but really, it was just, well, nobody ever thought of it another way. And then all of a sudden, you know, one spark from a, from a bad switch, and three guys are dead in a matter of a minute. You know, it's, um, 
So obviously the whole design changed on that. And when you look at that, Johnny, that's an unbelievable accomplishment. Because you went for it, and these guys were saying, Gene, Gene Krantz said that Gene Krantz said that after President Kennedy was assassinated, he said their their mission. So now this is 1963. Their mission, and he said every one of us to a man felt was not only to get a man, you know, was to get a man and to the moon and back safely, but to do it in the time frame that he had set forth, which was by the end of the decade. And his words were, it became a quest, and it became a quest for all of us. So now when you look at all that and all of the things that happened through Gemini, uh, you know, we almost lost Neil Armstrong in a Gemini flight when his, his craft went stumbled. For whatever reason, they weren't sure. It was literally going, it was tumbling out of control. He was near near passing out, and then he, he kind of corrected it, and they got back, and they docked, and they got back safe. But, I mean, imagine that. Neil Armstrong was the first guy that walked in the moon. He came perilously close to being the first the first astronaut to die in space, mm. you know, and the first astronaut to be lost. So, you know, and all, all of those things that would, that, that would take place throughout, throughout, throughout the flight, um, and yet, finally, so now they get there and they get to Apollo, and this is the first. Uh, they're going to be the first Apollo flight. So they're not just more like testing boosters and you know, like sort of mundane. I put that in quotes, kind of things, um, you know. And then you have this this fire. Now that's January, of 1967, and they're trying to get a guy up and back by 69. Well, obviously everything shut down. They redesigned the whole cockpit, you know, and all. And all of that, they, they go from the pure oxygen environment. They just they make all of the changes that had to be made to make it more safe. To keep that from happening, they just change the hatch. Because that, that another simple thing, the hatch opened in instead of pushing out. So they couldn't pull it in and then get around it to get out. They could just push it out. They might have been able to get out. You know what I mean? So mm. it's just all of those kinds of little things. But they went through all of that and the redesign. And with, with that came... What are we doing this for anyway? What's the point of this? All of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and, and they ended up getting there. And not only, and, and what's lost on this a lot is we not only got a man to the moon and back safely once, we did it twice before 1970 because they did it again in November. So it's kind of, it's kind of remarkable. And so in that, in that little time frame, what you saw was all of that take place. And then you saw the successful launch. You saw it all. So it was really, um, it was really, it was, it was really quite spectacular when you see that thread. And I, I, well, listen, I, well, they're talking about whatever, back to the moon in five years. I don't know how old you are, Johnny. I'm, I'm on the boat, as I like to say to my brother, I think we're on the 15th fairway of life. I think, you know, we got a few holes left to play, but, uh, you're going to see, I think within, Within ten to fifteen years, maybe less, that we're going to see we're going to see Americans walking on Mars. I really yeah, think. I so. hope so too. I really do think so. I think you know some people will go back and forth on it, but I think the partnership with the private sector has really moved us right. really a lot closer to it. And I mean, what yeah, we saw no Saturday doubt. was and proof, one hundred percent proof. Yeah. No doubt, and that and you know you know it's interesting, and this is where really when you when you look at. The beauty of this is it, it, is it accentuates what we can do in an environment of creativity and freedom. 
and to do all that kind of stuff, you know, where the state was not controlling everything. And this is this this partnership is it's uh, it's a match made in heaven. You know, they were talking about taking what you're going to have commercial flights, right? So mm-hmm. maybe you, can, you want to take a tour, you know, save your pennies, roll up your pennies, get Arcadia to give you a big raise and start saving your money. You can be, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, what do you want to do this weekend? I was thinking we'd go for three orbits. How's that sound? You know what I mean? Awesome. Yeah, it oh, could happen. You know what I mean? I mean, we're, you know, I'm a big dreamer. Let's try to happen. You know, and you know, one more thing I want to say too about the book too is the pictures you found. They aren't posed, you know, they're not really posed shots. They're candid shots, Ray. And you can see like the the images when he's watching um, Grissom go up and then splash down. The images that right. he has with with uh, John Glenn when he's coming, in, when President Kennedy flies Glenn's family yep. down to meet him. And when he's touring with Glenn and when he's with the astronauts, you can tell these are guys he wants to be around. And you can tell they respect no the president. And that's the type mm-hmm. of, even after the president's gone, you can tell that he inspired them. And that's the type of leadership that got us to the moon. Even after he was gone, it didn't lead a vacuum. Right. Not, that yeah. leadership stayed with him. There's no doubt. There is no doubt. Listen, you know, and, and he was, uh, well, you know, one of my favorite set, set of photos, I don't know if I put one or two of them in, but you'll notice that he puts on the hard hat. Um, uh, I think it's with, when he's with John, with, with, it might have been when he was with Glenn. But they gave him a hard hat because he was looking at one of the one of the launch pads that was going to the moon, and he put the hard hat on, and that is you know that what what is really remarkable about that, Johnny, and, and unless people know this, it's a um, it's a well known historical fact that JFK he never he hated hats, he never wore hats, he didn't like hats, he would never put on. You know, there's a famous there's a famous photograph of President Calvin Coolidge wearing an Indian headdress, you know, a big long flowery headdress, and he's got a suit on. I mean, Calvin Coolidge was a very staunch businessman, you know, very stoic kind of guy. Oh, cool frankly, Cal! He looks ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, cool Cal, and he looks ridiculous in it, you know. And Kennedy would never do that, even if you if you go to the if you go to the clips of his last breakfast in Fort Worth. When Raymond Buck, the Chamber of Commerce, gives him a hat, it's a cowboy hat. And he said, you know, we want to keep you away from the rain and everything. And so he hands him the hat and, and JFK, you know, kind of nods thanks. And he gives it to Raymond Buck and he says, put it on. So Raymond Buck puts it on. He gets a big hand from the crowd. And then, he, and then the president sits down. And then the people in the crowd, there's 2,000 people in this ballroom for the breakfast. And he speaks that. You can hear them. Put it on. Put it on. Put it on. So he stands back up, and, and people are kind of going, holy man, you going to do this? Because he never did. And he said, uh, he just looked, and he said, I'll put it on in the White House on Monday, and if you come up there, you'll have a chance to see it then. And then he sits back down. <laughs> but with that hard hat, he put it on. That is an unbelievable gesture on his part that he did that, and he allowed that to happen. Um, and I think I also have a photograph of him in the back of the of the convertible, and, and, the, and the helmet is just on the on the side. And that's not one display at the JFK Live. Yeah, and you also uh, have one where he's talking to John Glenn's wife and he's holding the helmet too. He didn't just pass it off yeah. to somebody. He didn't pass exactly. it off to a handler like a lot of presidents will do. He yeah. held on to that. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. And that and again that those are the simple gestures that that and I think I wrote about that. That you know he did that was that that was a huge gesture for him. And that was a show of respect that he had that he had for 
for those guys and for what what they were doing. It really was a um, it was just an exciting time, you know. And I I I, um, I attribute a lot to it. I'm a I'm a little boy. I am in the third grade when he's elected president. I'm in the sixth grade when he is assassinated. Okay, but I guess you know I once had a I was I worked as a docent at the JFK Library for a little bit when I was in grad school, and um, I remember a fourth grader asking me. This is funny, actually. He said, raise his hand. I would take, I would take school groups around the museum. And then I would take questions and the kid asked, he said, said, do you know, did you know President Kennedy? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, well, what are you doing here then? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. I said, what am I doing here? And I said to the kid, I said, look, when I was your age, I said, President Kennedy, made me feel like my life could make a difference. I said, so he's not here to tell you that, so I guess I'm here to tell you that for him. And the kid kind of looked at me and gave me the appropriate respect. I don't think he really cared one way or the other. It wasn't, it wasn't the answer he was looking for. But that kind of like what I guess, what I guess sums up the leadership of, of JFK through, a kid, through the eyes of a nine-year-old boy, you know, that, that I was – and in all fairness, uh, I have to say, I was—I grew up in Massachusetts. I was wildly excited that a Massachusetts guy, you know, was elected president of the United States. I had an inside look at that, and an extra sort of flipped the switch of my interest. You know, my grandfather had been a Boston, uh, worked in Boston politics for his whole life, um, worked on JFK's congressional campaign in '46. And again on his Senate campaign with him in 1952. So my, you know, my granddad had kind of a he had a pretty good relationship with him. I mean, they remained mm-hmm. in touch, and he actually visited him at the White House, you know, a couple of times. But so I was on, that kind of lit me up a little bit too. That's kind of opened my eyes. So as a as a seven year old, you know, I was asking Dad and Mom if I could stay up as late as I could to watch the election returns when he was a president in 1960. I'm not sure many seven year olds do that today. Just saying. <laughs> no, it would be great if they would have that interest. I mean, that would be great. But, you know. Yeah. It's up to yeah, but it was, was my it generation was to get their kids interested again yeah. that way. Yeah, well, and that's right. And that's, see, these are the kinds, these are the kinds of things that they're, they're uplifting. You know, that speech that JFK gives at, at Rice University, I would recommend anybody listening to this, if you want to get it, it's about a 15, maybe 18-minute speech at Rice University. It's available on the website of the JFK Library. And you watch him speaking between to 50,000 people at uh, Rice University. Um, and I'm going to say it's, I'm going to think, I think it's September 12th of 1962. Um, when he goes on, he goes on about a three, and I, and this is a big chunk of the book. So he went on about, he went on about 48-hour Spin through Cape Canaveral. He went to all the space places, Cape Canaveral, Huntsville, Alabama, uh, Houston, and St. Louis, where they were building, you know, they were building the, uh, they were building some of the rockets and the different components of everything. And that's where he gave the famous speech, we choose to go to the moon and this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You know, and he talks about Americans' vision for the moon, what we were doing, why we were doing it, um, you know, what we hope to gain from it and all of that. So it's pretty, it's, it's very, it's well worth, it's 
So I would suggest that anybody, and you'll get a little, a little picture of a, a little glimmer of the enormous uh, leadership ability of JFK. Uh, in that, and that it's, it's encompass that will kind of encompass him and his view for the administration in that one 18 minute speech. It's pretty yeah. good. I recommend it. Ray, thanks for talking to me today, and thanks for uh, being on, and thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, guys, this was a blast. Uh, Good to speak to you, and uh, keep up the good fight, my friend. You too. Thank you, the audience, for listening. And remember, you can find Ray's books at your local bookstores or at ArcadiaPublishing.com. Now, I want to thank Jane Bills and Name Band Project for the show's theme song. You can check them out on Facebook by searching for Jane Bills and Name Band Project. If you have questions or future episode ideas, you can reach me by email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. I'll talk with you again soon.